If you found it, say amen. All right. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and being began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Well, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father in heaven, this morning as we look into your word, it's our hope and prayer that you would do a great work through it. Uh, only you can speak to our hearts in the way that we need spoken to. And so I pray that you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week we, we saw Jesus in the upper room with the disciples and he was celebrating Passover with them, which was not an unusual thing at all, but the unusual thing was that he washed the feet of the disciples. We, we talked about how he washed all of their feet. We talked about how he washed them one by one. We talked about how he washed those feet very well. Um, and there were two significances we talked about to what Jesus did. The first was the washing of the disciples' feet was symbolic of the redemptive work that he was about to accomplish on the cross. And then the second thing we talked about was that the washing of the disciples' feet was an example of Christ-like service that the church is to imitate throughout all the ages for one another. Now after this event, remember we're looking at the 24 hours of Jesus right before he dies. After this event, Jesus leads 11 of the disciples out uh, into the night. Judas is gone. He's about to go and betray Jesus. And these 11 disciples travel with Jesus to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to spend his last moments of freedom in this garden and he's going to prepare himself for the most horrific event of all time and so the details that that we've been given here uh help us to understand to some degree the agony that jesus faced when he was in the garden of gethsemane so that's what we look at this morning and the first thing i want you to see here is that in verse 32 we see that jesus wanted to be alone with the disciples and they went to a place called gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while i pray now there was a sentimental reason for jesus to be in the garden of gethsemane the word itself means oil press and it was called the garden of gethsemane because there was an oil press there and oil Oil press was, was a, a piece, a device that was used to separate oil from olives. Uh, this was a privately owned garden. It was protected by a wall. It contained this press and it was secluded. 
Luke said that it was the custom of Jesus and His disciples to go to this particular place. And John says that they went there often together. And so it was a place where they could get away uh, from the crowd to talk and to pray. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the disciples. You see, Jesus wants some alone time with them. Jesus has spent years with these men healing and teaching and preaching and debating But on the eve of his death, he's not doing that anymore. He wants to go to a place that they all know very well. And he wants to spend time praying with the people that he's closest to on this earth. I was thinking about this and it's it's like that moment when the doctor calls in just the family. They know that death is approaching. And because death is approaching, everyone knows that the most important thing is to be with those people who are closest. And so we see here that those who are closest to Jesus on this earth are called into the Garden of Gethsemane to spend the final moments of Jesus alive on this earth together. As I mentioned, Judas is the only one who isn't there. Now most of the disciples stay in one area of the garden, but Jesus takes Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden. And Jesus leaves them in a little group to pray. And then Jesus goes over and He finds a spot where He can be all by Himself. But the important thing is this, that they're all together. They're all in this common place. This little family that's been through so much in the last three years. They're spending their final moments together. Now we're going to see in just a minute that Jesus wants to also spend some time with the Father. He wants to talk one-on-one with the Father. You see, these are very precious moments to Jesus. He's alone with the Father. He's alone with the disciples, whom He loved to the very end, as we saw last week. And so there is a sentimental reason for Jesus to be here in the garden. But not only is there a sentimental reason for Jesus to be in the garden, there's also a theological reason for Him to be there. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam, which means He's the second representative of the human race. You remember the first representative Representative was Adam, and he was placed in a perfect garden. And in that perfect garden, he was placed there with a bride. And he was told by the Lord, Obey me and you will not die. He failed that test, didn't he? Death came into the world, and the Bible says, In Adam we all die. What do we have here in the Garden of Gethsemane? In the Garden of Gethsemane, we have the second Adam. But he's not in a perfect garden, he's in an imperfect garden. He doesn't have the perfect bride like Eve was, he has an imperfect bride with him. And he is told to obey the will of the Father and he will die. And so my point is, the second Adam Adam, has a much more difficult task than the first Adam did. Think about the first Adam. The first Adam was in a better garden. The first Adam had a better bride. The first Adam had an easier command to obey, and he failed. And think about this for just a moment. God says to Adam in the garden, follow the will of God and live. But then God says to the second Adam, follow the will of God and die. What's more difficult? Certainly the latter. And so as you read this, I want you to let your mind go back all the way to the book of Genesis when humanity was ruined in that garden. Go all the way back. Go back to that garden. Go back to that man, Adam, who represented the human race. 
Go back to a man who was supposed to fight the devil for his bride, but did not. Go back to a man who was to be, above all things, committed to the will of God. And you'll see that he didn't do that. And then when you keep reading the Bible, what will you see after that? You'll see the judgment of God in the books of the law. You'll see the rebellion of man in the books of the prophets. You'll see the failures of man in the books of the history. You'll see the sorrows of man in the wisdom literature. All throughout the Bible, that's all you'll see. And this is where it all started, y'all. It all started in a perfect garden called Eden. But now we have a new man in a different garden. And the question is this. Can he restore what Adam forfeited? You see, there are theological reasons that we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And don't think for a moment that Satan didn't remember what he did to the first Adam in a garden. When he got the first Adam in a garden, he won in his mind. Humanity failed. And I'm sure he thought to himself, now I have the second Adam right where I want him. I have him with his bride in the garden. And I'll do with him what I did to the first Adam. So there is not only a sentimental reason for him to be in the garden of Gethsemane. There's also a very deep theological reason here as well, church. And then there is also just a very practical reason for him to be in this garden. Jesus knows that Judas knows the garden. He he knows that. Jesus could have gone somewhere Judas didn't know. But Jesus goes to the garden because He knows that Judas knows that that's where they'll be. And Judas is going to go and tell everyone or go and tell the enemies of Jesus, this is where Jesus is right now. He's in the middle of the night. You can arrest Him without any, any, any rebellion, without any, causing any trouble. Just go there and get Him in the middle of the night. I know right where He's at. Adam, I mean, uh, um, uh, Judas knew that He was there in that garden. There would be no rioting of the people. There would be very little collateral damage. And so Jesus actually goes to the garden for this very practical reason as well. Because Judas had been there so many times and he knew exactly where it was and he knew that that would be a very simple place to arrest Jesus. So we see that they are in the garden for sentimental reasons. We see they're in the garden for theological reasons. And we see they're in the garden for very practical reasons as well. Now the second thing we see in this text is is Jesus warned against spiritual apathy. We see that in verses 32 through 41. Now I want you to see that the disciples failed Christ. They're given very simple instructions. They're just supposed to watch and pray, right? That's it. That's simple enough, isn't it? You don't even have to write that down, do you? Watch and pray. What does watch mean? Well, watch implies danger. If somebody tells you to watch out, you're thinking, okay, danger's coming. That's the idea. And so because watching implies danger, watching also implies prayer. See, this is a dangerous time for Jesus. And so they're supposed to be praying. I think it's so important that he brings Peter and James and John into the deepest part of the garden with him. I think it's significant because of this. They're the toughest guys in the crowd. You read the Bible, you see that. There's no doubt that Peter's the toughest guy in the crowd. Peter's the one who's always ready for a fight. 
And so Jesus taking these tough guys deep into the garden, this is a battle. This is spiritual warfare. You, you know that Peter, in, in, in just a minute, you're going to see next week, Peter is going to be ready to fight the whole Roman army by himself. He takes out a sword and tries to take off one of their heads. Tries to kill him. I mean, Peter is ready for a fight, buddy. He's the first one that says, let's go. James and John are called the sons of thunder. I've told y'all before that that sounds like a tag team wrestling duo, doesn't it? The sons of thunder. You don't get that name because you're quite meek. They're the ones who wanted to call down fire on on the Samaritan city. They're the ones who said, we're going to be number one and we're going to be number two in the kingdom of God. And so these are the toughest guys he has. These are the guys who are always ready to fight. And so in a time where they need to fight, in a time where they need to be tough, Jesus brings in Peter and James and John. And then Jesus tells these men, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. What is he saying to them when he says that? He's saying, pray for me. He's saying, guys, they've never seen Jesus say anything like that before. He's never said anything close to that. And he tells these men, he says, I'm sorrowful. I'm sorrowful even unto death. Pray for me. But they don't pray for him. Instead, they fall asleep. And Jesus tells them three times, doesn't He? Watch and pray. But every time, they fall asleep. And look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 37. He said, Simon, are you asleep? He said, could you not watch one hour? So Jesus has been over there praying for an hour, for an hour in the garden. Jesus has been over there on His face and He's been praying. And He gets up to go over and look at Peter and James and John. Why? To see if they're praying. That's why He does that. He goes back to see if they're praying. And when He gets there, they're not praying at all. They're asleep. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. Jesus just recently told Peter these words. He said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that He may sift you like wheat. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says that to Peter right before these events, right before Gethsemane. Now, when Jesus needs prayer, when Satan desires to have Jesus that He may sift him like wheat, Peter doesn't pray for Jesus. He doesn't. So in Jesus' time of greatest need, His prayer partners failed Him. In Jesus' time of greatest need, His prayer partners failed Him. You know, that reminds me of this. Folks, we have done nothing to deserve or help Christ in His atoning work for us. When when humanity was even there to pray that He'd make it through, that He would not shirk. That He would not walk away from it. We didn't even do that. Didn't even pray for the man. And so you and I, as Bryce was speaking earlier when he read that psalm, what in the world can we boast in when it comes to our salvation? 
There Peter, James, and John is, the best of the best among the disciples, and they weren't even praying for Him. They, they were asleep. You see, Jesus overcomes, and Jesus takes the cup, and Jesus goes to the cross, but it wasn't because someone was praying for Him. It wasn't because someone was praying for Him. You see, they failed Christ. But not only did the disciples fail Christ, the disciples failed themselves. Look at verse 38. He said, I pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now the Spirit here doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the Spirit of man. More accurately, the desires of man. In other words, He knew it was not their intention to fail. He knew that, that, that they wanted to do the right thing. But what they did was they underestimated the weakness of the flesh. The flesh is always weaker than the desires of the human spirit. There are things you desire, things you want, that's true. But understand this, you need spiritual power because the flesh is always weaker than your desires. So not only should they have been praying for Christ, they needed prayer. And when they didn't pray, they failed themselves. And you know, after they got rebuked the first time, you'd think, well, okay, they're going to get the point, right? They're going to get the point. They needed prayer. They needed to pray. They failed. Jesus rebuked them. You'd think, okay, you ever have that when you when you, when you raised your kids? You go in there and you wake your kids up. You bang on the door. What, you run up yet? You're supposed to be up 30 minutes ago. I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. And you walk out and you go out there and you, you do something and then you come back and they're asleep again. You ever remember anything like that? And you, what are you doing? That's what I think about when I think about this. So, so Jesus, He goes out there and wakes them up and then He comes back and guess what? They're asleep again. They didn't get it. That They didn't take it seriously. And they don't realize that after Jesus is arrested, they're all going to be humiliated because all of them are going to be shown to be cowards. The flesh is Jesus is saying, you guys need to pray for yourselves. What, what happens when Jesus is arrested? They run for cover. They lie and say they don't even know who Jesus is. They doubt the resurrection even when He rises from the dead. These men are weak. These men are cowards. These men failed themselves. And Jesus tried to tell them. He tried to warn them. You guys need to be praying. Not just for me. You guys need to be praying for yourselves. The Spirit's willing. The flesh is weak. You see, Jesus knew what was on the way. Jesus knew there was an army coming with swords and torches and lanterns. There were literally hundreds of soldiers, as Jesus was talking to them, on their way to come and arrest Jesus and the rest of them. And by the way, if it were not for Jesus, the whole lot of them would have been arrested. All of them would have been taken to jail. It's amazing that Peter... It's a, and I'm not trying to preach Price's sermon next week, but it's amazing that Peter wasn't taken in on attempted murder charges and killed himself. But Jesus made a deal with him and He said, look, you've got me. Let them go. You're looking for me. Take me. There'll be no problems. I'll go quietly. But let these men go. And so if it weren't for Jesus, the whole lot would have been arrested and probably charged with insurrection and probably killed. They had no idea how weak they were. You know, Jesus said, in this world you're going to have tribulation. And Jesus has already told us that. But listen to me, folks. It's your responsibility to prepare yourself for a world and a life of tribulation. So they not only failed Christ, they failed themselves. 
And the disciples had no excuse for their failure. The text, look, it's so interesting if you look at verse 40. The text even says that they were sleepy because you'd say, okay, you know, they, 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 were, they were sleepy. And Luke says even more than that. Luke says the sorrow they had in their heart was causing them to be sleepy. The sorrow they had in their heart. Not only were they sleepy, but it was late. It's really late at this point, y'all. They've been in the garden for about three hours already, so it was probably around midnight when all this happened. But not only were they tired, and not only was it late, but they had just eaten a big meal. Remember that last supper? So you put all that together, they're filled with sorrow. It's late. They've eaten a big meal. And you could say, well, I could see why they fell asleep. These are legitimate reasons. And there were legitimate reasons to be sleepy. But there was no excuse to be asleep. You know why? Because Jesus told them not to go to sleep. You can't watch and be asleep at the same time. Jesus said, watch and pray. You know, sometimes in your life, you just have to push through. There are times in your life where it's going to hurt. There are times in your life where you're going to be tired. There are times in your life where your body's going to say, well, you just need to quit. But you know what? That's no excuse. No one ever said it was going to be easy. At the end of the day, we may have a hundred excuses for why we failed God, but I'm going to tell you something, none of them matter. Because God has already warned us to prepare ourselves for spiritual battle, and war is never easy. Amen? War is never easy. And my dear friend, when you get saved, you have declared war on the devil. You have said to him, I will no longer live for you. I am working for Christ. I am gathering. You are scattering. I am preaching the truth. You are preaching lies. You are at war with the devil. And my friend, the Spirit may be willing. You may have every intention in this world to do what's right. But if you underestimate the weakness of the flesh, you will find yourself humiliated spiritually, failing time and time again, sleeping when you should be watching, doing whatever when you should be praying. Dear friend, please understand that when Jesus tells us that this is a tough world to live in, He means every word of that. And now we come to the most telling section here, and it's Jesus wrestling with the will of God. Jesus wrestling with the will of God. I want you to see Jesus' emotional state uh, described here in detail. You, You read Luke's account of this, and Luke says this. Luke says he prayed so hard that he bled. So here it is, men, their prayers are so weak, they can't stay awake. Jesus is praying so hard that he begins to bleed. There could be no greater contrast, could there? These men's prayers are so weak, they fall asleep. This man's prayers are so, are so powerful that, that he literally begins to bleed on his brow. Mark says that he was greatly distressed, that he was troubled. And that he was sorrowed even unto death. Now what does that mean, that phrase, sorrowed even unto death? That doesn't mean he was sorry he was going to die. That's not what that means at all. It means his sorrow was so great it was about to kill him. You ever felt so sad you just thought you'd die? Amen. You just thought you might die. Well, Jesus was there. His heart was so broken. He was sorrowful. 
You've never seen a person as broken-hearted as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You hear me, church? You have never seen a person as broken-hearted as Jesus was in that Garden of Gethsemane. You say, well, why such grief? Why such grief? I've got one word for you. Here's why he had such grief. Omniscience. He knew what was about to happen to him. He knew what was going to happen when he went to that cross. Some of you think, well, I'd like to know what's going to happen six months from now. No, you don't. You just think you would. Because some of you, if you knew what was going to happen by the end of this year, you couldn't enjoy the rest of this year. Amen? You'd be filled with such sorrow. Here's the thing about Jesus. He knows. He knows exactly what's about to happen to him. And because He knows what's about to happen to Him on the cross, He is deeply troubled. He is sorrowful even unto death. What's He going to do, y'all? He's going to suffer for the sins of the world. And that's why His grief is so great. He's about to suffer for the sins of the world. And let us never pretend, let us never pretend that we can relate to Jesus. Because we cannot relate to Jesus. He's about to experience the judgment of God. You say, well, I don't know, preacher. What about the people in hell? They know what Jesus went through. No, they don't. They don't know what Jesus went through. They only know the pain of their own hell. Jesus is about to experience the pain of a million hells. And so even the people in hell can't relate to Jesus because they're only experiencing one level of hell. Jesus is going to experience hell for the sins of the world. Think about a person like this, and this is... It comes nowhere near to making the point I want to make because there's still a great chasm between the two things. But think of it like this. Here's a person who lost a child. Here's a person whose child died. And they are broken hearted. And here's another person who, whose children are healthy. And this person comes to the one who lost the child with all of their children healthy playing in the background and says to the person who lost their child, I know how you feel. No, they don't. They don't know how they feel. They have no clue how they feel. Well, it's way worse than that when we look at Jesus on the cross and say, Jesus, I know how you feel. We have no clue. We have no clue what He was going through. And so we don't ever need to think that we can somehow relate to Jesus None of us can relate to Jesus because none of us will ever be that troubled. None of us will ever be that distressed. None of us will ever be that sorrowful. And so when you see Jesus in this state, the point is not for you and I to pity Him. The point is for us to stand in awe of Him. Because we think, look what He endured. Look what He conquered. Look what He went through for me. When you see Jesus in this state, you don't pity Him. You stand in awe of Him. You see, Christ not only endures unparalleled physical torture, He also endures unparalleled emotional torture. The sorrow and the anguish in His heart was also greater than any human ever experienced. Not just the cross, church, but the anxiety and the sorrow and the troubling in his heart 
was far greater than any human had ever experienced and will ever experience. Now, now Jesus' prayer here is a revealing prayer. He says in verse 35 that, this, that, that the hour might pass. And then He says in verse 36 that the cup would be removed. Now the hour and the cup are the same thing. The moment when Jesus would be punished for the sins of the world. That's the hour. That's the cup. Because notice, He doesn't say, Father, remove the beatings. Father, remove the crown of thorns. Father, remove the mockery. Father, remove the piercing of the hands and the feet. Father, remove the slaps and the punches. He doesn't say that, does He? And that part is frightening. But what's more, more, more frightening than anything is the cup. And you say, what is the cup? Well, the cup in the Old Testament, the cup is, is, is used to describe God's judgment. For instance, this is what the Old Testament says. It says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. That cup represents the portion a person had to take for the judgment of God being poured upon them in several places in the Old Testament. The judgment of God on a people or a nation is described as a cup. And so Jesus taking this cup means that He's going to be treated like a sinner on judgment day. Jesus will be treated like a sinner on He'll take the cup. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And Jesus, knowing that this cup is stretched out to Him, and knowing that, that in order to save the world, He must take this cup, He's saying to the Father, if there's another way possible to redeem humanity, let it be known. In other words, Jesus is saying, if it's morally possible for you to receive sinners into heaven without my atoning work, let it be so. But see, folks, it was not morally possible because God is just. And God must punish sin. Now, if you're unsaved in here, I really want you to look at Jesus because if you're not afraid to die in your sins, it's because you believe a lie. There's no person more courageous than Jesus and look at Him when He begins to think about falling beneath the wrath of God. You're in this world, you don't care. My dear friend, you are in ignorance. Look at what happened to Jesus when He knew what He was about to go through. It says, I'm telling you folks, if you are lost and you are not greatly distressed, you are not troubled, you are not sorrowful even unto death, there's something wrong in your life. And by the way, if you're looking for proof that there is a hell, look at Jesus and guess Him. If you're looking for proof that there is a hell, Look at you. Why is he so sorrowful? Why is he so troubled? Why, why, why is he, 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 he sweating drops of blood? There are many people who died and didn't react like that. There are many people who were executed. Even here in America, some people go to their death with the lethal injection with a smile on their face. They're not worried. So are we to say that they were more courageous than Jesus in his death? No, we don't say that at all. Why was Jesus so filled with sorrow? Not because he was dying. It was because he was about to be punished for the sins of the world. So if you're looking for proof that there is a hell, you just look at Jesus in Gethsemane. That's all you need to look at to know, dear friends, that hell is real. 
But thank God in verse 36, he said, but nevertheless, your will be done. Thank God Jesus said that. Amen. When Adam was in his garden, he said, my will be done. My will be done. And he took us all to hell. When Jesus was in his garden, he said, thy will be done. And he takes us all to heaven. Amen. He takes us all to heaven. And then Jesus boldly walks to his death in verses 41 and 42. And he came the third hour and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed to the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And when Jesus found them sleeping the last time, he, he didn't tell them to pray again. He said, You guys have slept enough. Get up. The hour has come. And Jesus is serious. And by the way, he hasn't slept a wink. And even though he hasn't slept a wink, he is ready to go. And he leads these men out to the entry of the garden. He's like a general leading his troops to war. He's not running from the enemy. He, he's going straight to where the enemy is. He's going out there to surrender himself. The change in Jesus is really amazing if you follow the text. The change in him is really amazing. He's gone from being sorrowful, from being troubled, to sweating these great drops of prayer, of blood, laying face down, crying out to, to the Father. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And now you see him standing like a general, ready to go to war, and says, Get up, guys, let's go. They're here. I'm ready. And he marches out. Luke says that in his time of prayer, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 43, that he was strengthened. He was strengthened. He was emboldened. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm placing myself in the hands of sinners, my betrayers at hand. Let's go. Folks, you need to know this, that Jesus is the only person who ever chose to die. He's the only one. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't know, preacher. Um... What about people who take their own life? They choose to die. No, they don't. They just choose to die earlier. They don't choose to die. They just go a little further. Jesus is the only man who ever chose to die. Because if he didn't want to die, he would not have died. He died willingly. And he marches to his death with great courage. Why? For you. For me. Folks, there was great agony in that garden. But let us not forget that there was also great victory in that garden. That he did not get kicked out of that garden. Like Adam got kicked out of his. But that he went out of that garden. Not to, to take humanity to hell like Adam did. But to take us to heaven. He overcame the weakness of the flesh. He resisted the temptation to abandon the cross and thus abandon us. And thank God this morning, because of the obedience of Jesus, we're saved. Thank God for that, church. And so as we think about Easter season coming, let us not forget the garden. Because it was in that garden that we saw the resolve of Jesus to not abandon us like Adam did. To not fail his bride like Adam did. But to win his victory.
to atone for our sins and to give us a home in heaven. If you don't know the Lord, boy, I hope, you, hope you've looked at these passages today and I hope your heart's been broken. I hope you see your need. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death. You must turn from your sins and believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and rose. And if you'll call on His name, He'll save you. If you haven't done that, I pray you will.